0: Welcome to The Law with D.K. Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is episode 51, and we're going to discuss Korematsu versus the United States. This is the 1944 U.S. Supreme Court case that upheld the constitutionality of Japanese internment during World War II. I think this decision is illustrative of the power of fear and the links it can lead otherwise reasonably intelligent people to go to. It's a cautionary tale, and I think it's important to understand it and go over it and what the Supreme Court says in this. As always, the law with DK Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to the law and the other Speakeasy Ideas podcast through your favorite podcast provider, and at SpeakeasyIdeas.com. Follow this podcast on social media. Go to Twitter; it's at thelawdkw, and on Facebook.com/slash the law with DK Williams. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're so inclined, check out the Facebook page, like it, review it, comment, subscribe, share, etc. You know the the deal. And I'm available. I frequently speak at different uh, groups or in front of different groups, events, also available for consulting and teaching. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details on that. So this is the case where the U.S. Supreme Court said that an order, which actually an executive order by FDR, that allowed the military to issue these rulings. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld that, and the internment of American citizens, even when the person's loyalty was not in any way in doubt, that these people could be put in relocation camps because the U.S. was at war with Japan. In shorthand, the majority says, hey, we're at war, and if the Prez, FDR, and his military generals say we need to do this, and did we mention we're at war? Because we've been attacked by Japanese and, you know, we're just going to let the president and the military do what they say they're going to do because we don't want to stop them. Now, while this case has never been officially overturned, just last year in 2018, current Chief Justice Roberts said in an opinion that as a practical matter, it has been overturned. Everybody re- agrees that it is no longer a uh, good law even if the court hasn't specifically overturned it. And we'll get to that exact quote. This case was decided 75 years ago, 1944. And that's really not that long ago, just one generation, right? One lifetime, 75 years. is not ancient history. And I think we know people today who would enthusiastically support the government incarcerating a group of people based on being a member of a group. People are like that. People like that in every country. And we have to be wary of that and not let it happen. So who are the named participants here? Who was Korematsu? His name was Fred Korematsu. He was an American citizen born in Oakland, California. He was the third of four sons born to Japanese parents. His parents immigrated to the United States in 1905. Fred Korematsu, the name in this case, the person in this case, he grew up in Oakland until the time of his arrest, He attended the public schools, participated in the Castle Mount High School tennis and swim teams, worked in his family's flower nursery in nearby San Leandro, San Leandro, California. The guy is American. And of course, the other name participant is the United States of America, and we are familiar with who that is. So this is a 6-3 Supreme Court decision. Hugo Black wrote the opinion. Hugo Black was an appointment of FDR. So, Hugo Black was also joined by Chief Justice Harlan Stone, appointed by FDR. Stanley Reed, also appointed by FDR. And Felix Frankfurter, also appointed by FDR. William Douglas, you guessed it, also appointed by FDR. And Wiley Rutledge, also appointed by FDR. So, that's your six in the majority decision. All six of them appointed by FDR. Progressive hero, FDR, I might add. The three separate dissents were written by Justice Owen Roberts, who was nominated by Herbert Hoover. Frank Murphy, who was also nominated by FDR. Robert Jackson, also nominated by FDR. FDR had appointed eight of the nine U.S. Supreme Court justices by the time this case was decided in 1944. He had been in office for 11 years at this time. He took over in 33. Now, just think about some of the wailing, gnashing of teeth from some quote-unquote progressives about how horrible it is that Trump has nominated two of nine, maybe get another one in the next two years. I, we don't know. So maybe one more. So apparently it was it is horrible to some of these people that Trump has two of the nine justices. And I wonder if these same people were transported back to 1944, if they would be nearly as concerned about FDR having nominated eight of nine of them. Somehow, I doubt that. They're funny that way. The only thing that some of these people are morally consistent about is the desire for power. So, Justice Black explains what led us here, what happened beforehand. He wrote, the petitioner, an American citizen of Japanese descent, was convicted in federal district court for remaining in San Leandro, San Leandro of California, which was a military area, contrary to civilian exclusion order number 34 of the commanding general of the Western Command U.S. Army. Civilian exclusion order issued by the commanding general of the Western Command of the U.S. Army. Sounds like something out of a dystopian novel, right? But it is not out of a dystopian novel. It was from the desk and policy executed by famed progressive FDR. Now, I'm the first to say that Americans now are getting soft. We haven't known difficulty. We haven't known a depression or a war. I'm 52. The last American war or police action was Vietnam when people were drafted. And that ended before I was 10. As a member of Gen X, we're the oldest group who has never suffered a war or depression in this country. So we don't know what that hardship is like. We haven't lived it. And this may be a little dramatic, but it reminded me of the scene in Fight Club where Tyler Durden says, We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. Now, again, that's a bit dramatic, but it has some truth to it. And I think it's worse for the younger generations, the the millennials and Generation Z or whatever the next one is called. My grandfather was a CB in the Navy during World War II in the South Pacific Construction Battalion. Do you think he ever would have let somebody calling him a name hurt his feelings? Would he care about it? Would he worry about a microaggression? No, of course not. In Apocalypse Now, about Vietnam, the last war where we had a draft in the United States, there's a quote from that that applies. And Charlie Sheen's character is waiting for a mission at the beginning of the movie says, every minute i stay in this room i get weaker and every minute charlie squats in the bush he gets stronger and i know well a lot of people are going to immediately think dave whoa 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 now charlie is an insensitive term well you've proved my point i didn't call anyone a name i quoted a movie it is a historically accurate depiction of an american soldier in the vietnam war to use that term running away from that is a denial of history We should not celebrate that denial. We must not whitewash it out of existence. Oh no, no, no! I said whitewash. I guess I'll never host the Oscars. And we have had Afghanistan and Kuwait and some other military excursions, but there was no draft in any of those conflicts, so they didn't affect an entire generation, even though they affected a significant portion of one. So when everything is easy for a long time, we get soft, we get weak, we become easy to nominate. 2019 is a very different time than 1944. People back then. Many of them had already been in World War I or they had experienced the Depression and now they're in the middle of another World War. But that does not mean that threat, that very real existential threat of not only the Japanese wanting to take over, but also the Nazis. That threat does not excuse tyranny on the part of America. We are fighting tyrannies. We are fighting Japan. We are fighting the Nazis. So becoming tyrannical to defeat tyranny is not what the United States is about. And this decision is one of the most tyrannical decisions the U.S. Supreme Court has authored. Black acknowledges, writing for, the, uh, writing for the majority. He says, No question was raised as to petitioners' loyalty to the United States. Korematsu was a loyal American citizen. Black goes on, It should be noted to begin with that all legal restrictions which curtail the civil rights of a single racial group are immediately suspect. Well, that's probably good. That is not to say that all such restrictions are unconstitutional. It is to say that courts must subject them to the most rigid scrutiny. Pressing public necessity may sometimes justify the existence of such restrictions. Racial antagonism never can. So let that think in. In other words, racism is bad, so far so good. Singling out a single racial group is not acceptable unless the government has a really good reason what he called a pressing public necessity. The idea that rights can be overcome if the government has a really good reason is pernicious, and it has come up in many of the cases we've discussed. Anytime the Supreme Court is going to weigh government interest versus a right, they've already diminished the value of that right, because they're saying, hey, we got to look at the government interest. And if the government has a good enough reason, I'm afraid your right is either going to be quashed or minimized or in some way diminished. And that's not right. That's not good. The order Korematsu violated was based on FDR Executive Order 9066. Now, it's not quite Order 66 from Star Wars, but it did cross my mind. I thought of that. This order declared that. Executive Order from FDR. We've talked about executive orders uh, here in the past couple years from Obama to Trump. But this one said, The successful prosecution of the war, requires every possible protection against espionage and against sabotage to national defense material, national defense premises, and national defense utilities. It said some other stuff, but that's the bulk of it. So let that think in. The war requires every possible protection against espionage and sabotage. Every possible protection? Well, the Fourth Amendment makes it harder to detect espionage and sabotage. So ending the Fourth Amendment, just temporarily, of course, is allowable under that rationale. If the, it is if the government has the authority to employ every possible protection. So you can see how far this fear goes. And I'm not saying fear is never legitimate. It is legitimate sometimes, but not always. We can't always succumb to it. Now, this Korematsu decision is based on an earlier decision from just the year before, at an, uh, from 1943's Hirabayashi. And in that case, Hirabayashi, that court upheld a curfew imposed on Japanese, Japanese Americans under the authority of the same executive order from FDR 9066. The court says, as in the case with the exclusion order here, that prior curfew order was designed as a protection against espionage and against sabotage, quoting the executive order. But here's something that I think jumps to people's mind, and the said mentions this. Wouldn't non-Japanese also be potentially spies and saboteurs? I mean, we're also at war with the Germans and the Italians, but FDR doesn't seem to be concerned about them. Black and Korematsu goes on. The Hirabayashi conviction, and this one, Korematsu, rest on the same 1942 Congressional Act and the same basic executive and military orders, all of which orders were aimed at the twin dangers of espionage and sabotage the twin dangers. So can the entire constitution be suspended when faced with these twin dangers? What about other dangers? So you can see where this goes. If all we're concerned about is ending a danger, our twin dangers, the constitution gets in the way. So when it becomes problematic here, the court ignores it. And the three dissenters point this out vehemently. And it's another thing to to remember, another important aspect of this is that this case, Korematsu, which upheld the detention, the internment camps, is following the logic of the case one year prior, Hirabayashi. Now, Hirabayashi was about a curfew. Japanese Americans had to be off the street at a certain time period, nine o'clock or whatever it was. So they took the reasoning behind a curfew. All Japanese Americans have to be inside by nine o'clock or whatever it was. Now it goes from a curfew to internment. So you can see how fast government overreach grows. And people sometimes mock the slippery slope argument, but that's exactly what happens here. Eh, we can order all the Japanese Americans to be inside after 9 o'clock. Well, where does that slope go? Eh, we can order all the Japanese Americans over into this internment camp. Hey, same reason. We're worried about espionage and sabotage, which is what the Supreme Court rules. They say, yep, if we can order all the Japanese Americans inside, we can order them all to go to an internment camp. And I'll point out that at least one of the dissenters says it's not an internment camp, it's a concentration camp. And that word is loaded, of course, and has been used in modern politics as well. And another of the dissents says that these internment centers were just prisons. So Korematsu argued, the defendant himself, Fred Korematsu, argued that the Hirabayashi case was wrongly decided and should be overturned. The Supreme Court rejected that argument. They upheld their reasoning in Hirabayashi. And this makes one question the dedication of modern progressives to stare decisis and the respect for precedent. Because some progressives are all of a sudden very, very concerned about those concepts. That once the Supreme Court has said something, that's it forever. That stays that way. But when a case is wrong, like Hirabayashi, it should be overturned. It should have been overturned in Korematsu. It shouldn't have ever been ruled that way to begin with. So this current progressive concern about the respect for stare decisis isn't really about stare decisis, not about the concept of that. It's about protecting one particular decision that is sacred to them. And in which case that is, you can probably guess. So they would have been in favor at the time, and now if you ask them about it, of overruling Hirabayashi, and now of overruling Korematsu. So they aren't really concerned so much about the idea of never overturning decisions that have already been made, when they're wrong, they're concerned about protecting Roe versus Wade. So every time you see any, any mention of the possibility that overturning a case that the U.S. Supreme Court has done a couple times in the past couple of years involving taxes and, and state immunity, and you see a whole lot of distraught commentary about that, they're not concerned about those particular cases and about the idea that the court can overturn a bad decision. They are concerned about Roe versus Wade, so that's fine. They can be concerned about it, but when they pretend they're they're really concerned about something else, that's disingenuous. And as I pointed out before, this concern over the sacro about how sacrosanct precedent is is very selective, because almost all of these same people making that argument would agree that they want Citizens United to be overturned. And we talked about Citizens United in episode two of the law, so you can go back and check that out for more on that case. Black goes on for the majority. Like curfew, exclusion of those of Japanese origin was deemed necessary because the presence of an unascertained number of disloyal members of the group, most of whom we have no doubt were loyal to this country. And the Supreme Court mentioned that some Japanese Americans refused to take a loyalty oath as some of this unascertained number of people that were disloyal. And the Supreme Court notes that several thousand requested repatriation to Japan. Let's look at those two things. Oaths of allegiance are problematic in themselves, but it looks like this request to go back to Japan, that could be considered some evidence of being on Japan's side. But what if these people had some other reason? What if they have family in Japan and they're concerned about them under this tyrannical emperor who they want to defeat, but they also they want to be there to take care of their family? For them, they're not loyal to the empire. They're loyal to their family, and there's nothing wrong with that. So this Supreme Court decision saying that, hey, some people want to go back to Japan, that means at least some of them are disloyal. That's a pro- problematic conclusion. So based on these, these grounds, this fear of these unknown, unloyal Japanese Americans, they uphold the law in turning Korematsu and all these other Japanese Americans. And Black says, in doing so, we are not unmindful of the hardships imposed by it upon a large group of American citizens. Well, thank goodness they're mindful of it. The court goes on. But hardships are part of war and war is an aggregation of hardships. All citizens alike, both in and out of uniform, feel the impact of war in greater or lesser measure. Citizenship has its responsibilities as well as its privileges, and in time of war, the burden is always heavier. Compulsory exclusion of large groups of citizens from their homes, compulsory exclusion, making these Japanese Americans leave where they live and go to a camp, except under circumstances of direst emergency and peril, is inconsistent with our basic government institutions. The power to exclude, exclude these people from their home and make them go somewhere else. The power to exclude includes the power to do it by force if necessary. And well, that's a, That is a factual statement. And I wish people would recognize even today that all government power includes the power to use force which statists of all stripes ignore. Hey, let's make a policy. Let's ban something. Let's mandate something. All of those things are enforceable by government force, which means somebody with a gun. And that doesn't mean, hey, some people might want to go ahead and implement such a policy. But too many of them ignore that fact that they're advocating for violence by advocating for a particular government policy. Beta O'Rourke is doing that now. We will take your guns back. Well, what he's doing is he's saying... You might have a whole bunch of people throughout the united states hundreds of thousands millions who have these weapons and they're perfectly peaceful never hurt a soul and they have these guns for whatever reason they want and beto o'rourke says we're going to send government agents to collect those things we're going to use government agents with guns to go take other people's guns so he is advocating for the disruption of peace People are just hanging out at home, not harming anybody. No reason to think they're going to harm anybody. But we're so scared of these guns, we're going to forcibly go get them. Now, Korematsu, you are dealing with forcibly taking people, which is horrific, but it's the same idea. We're scared of guns, all of them, even though a very small minority of them will ever, ever be used to do anything unlawful. But we're going to take all of them. We're going to take all of these japanese americans even though a very very few number of them would even consider harming the united states spying on them blowing something up via sabotage well we're so scared of all of them we're going to force all of them into these camps it's that fear i'm talking about don't let that fear consume your reasonableness black for the supreme court goes on it is said that we are dealing here with the case of imprisonment of a citizen in a concentration camp solely because of his ancestry without evidence of, or inquiry concerning his loyalty and good disposition towards the United States. Yes, that is what has been said, and you've pretty much admitted that that is true. But get this, this sophistry, which is a word I never get to use unless I'm talking about the Supreme Court. Well, I get to use it some, but I get to use it a lot in a lot of these cases. This is the court. Koromatsu was not excluded from the military area, which means he wasn't made to leave where he lived because of hostility to him or his race. He was excluded because we are at war with the Japanese Empire. And there's a lot wrong with that statement, not to mention that we are also at war with the Germans and the Italians, yet no similar internment was ordered for them anywhere. The court goes on. Because Congress. Reposing its confidence in this time of war in our military leaders, as inevitably it must, determine that they should have the power, the military, should have the power to do just this. There was evidence of disloyalty on the part of some. The military authorities considered that the need for action was great and time was short. We cannot, the U.S. Supreme Court, by availing ourselves of the calm perspective of hindsight, now say that at that time, these actions were unjustified. And that's incredibly frightening. And Frankfurter's concurrence, who joined in the majority opinion, but he wrote extra, is just as frightening. Basically, the Supreme Court's saying, hey, when we're at war, Congress can do whatever they think is necessary to protect us. And if that means letting the military make these decisions and round up a bunch of people because they belong to a particular group, hey, we're not going to stop them. Frankfurter, in his concurrence, goes on and expounds on his view. To find that the Constitution allows the military measures now complained of does not carry with it the approval of that which Congress and the executive did. Okay, so he's saying we're going to let them do it, even though we're not saying it's a good idea, we're not saying it's a good policy or we agree with it, but here's the money quote. He says, that is their business, not ours. No, Justice Frankfurter, it is actually your business as being a member of the Supreme Court. And he's just summing up, when we're in war, the executive branch can do whatever it wants to protect us. That, that's at least the logical conclusion of this. He's saying, well, the Supreme Court is saying that, well, we can incarcerate people with no suspicion of any wrongdoing whatsoever, which turns us into the tyranny that we're fighting. So there were three dissents I will mention quickly. Justice Roberts wrote in his dissent, it is the case, this case that we're dealing with, This is a case of convicting a citizen as punishment for not submitting to imprisonment in a concentration camp, based on his ancestry, and solely because of his ancestry, without evidence or inquiry concerning his loyalty and good disposition towards the United States. Roberts goes on, the petitioner, Koromatsu, a resident of San Leandro, Alameda County, California, is a native of the United States of Japanese ancestry, who, according to the uncontradicted evidence, is a loyal citizen of the nation. He mentions that these internment rules were established pursuant to cooperation between the military authorities of the Western Defense Command and the Relocation Authority. We've got these Orwellian government agencies here. The Relocation Authority. If that doesn't make you cringe that there's a government relocation authority, it should. But again, that was just another progressive FDR government bureaucracy. Justice Murphy also dissented, and he said, This exclusion of all persons of Japanese ancestry, both alien and non-alien, from the Pacific Coast area on a plea of military necessity in the absence of martial law ought not to be approved. Such exclusion goes over the very brink of constitutional power and falls into the ugly abyss of racism. He goes on, it must be conceded that the military and naval situation in the spring of 1942 was such as to generate a very real fear of invasion of the Pacific coast, accompanied by fears of sabotage and espionage in that area. Again, that's a recurring theme, right? Sabotage and espionage. And so he mentions the fear was real. And fear is the best friend government power ever had. Whatever it is that somebody's arguing that we need to do to give government more power because something horrible is going to happen to us. We're all going to die. That's generating fear. And you can think of a number of policies right now where that's what happens. If we don't do something, we're going to die. If we don't give the government more power, we're going to die. If we don't give the government more money, we're going to die. That's fear. They're trying to generate fear. So you'll give up your freedoms to the government. Some fear is warranted, like I mentioned. Of course it is, but not 99% of it. Save your fear for when it counts, for that 1%. Be aware of the trap and don't fall in it. Murphy goes on, But to infer that examples of individual disloyalty prove group disloyalty and justify discriminatory action against the entire group is to deny that under our system of law, individual guilt is the sole basis for deprivation of rights. No adequate reason is given for the failure to treat these Japanese Americans on an individual basis by holding investigations and hearings to separate the loyal from the disloyal, as was done in the case of persons of German and Italian ancestry. So that's what we were talking about. They had separate rules for different people of heritage from the countries we were fighting, different rules for the Japanese who were fighting, the Japanese Americans were fighting the Japanese, and different rules for the German Americans and the Italian Americans he says, I dissent, therefore, from this legalization of racism. It is unattractive and itty setting. It is utterly revolting among a free people who have embraced the principles set forth in the Constitution of the United States. And the final dissent, Justice Jackson points out again, no claim is made that he, Korematsu, is not loyal to his country. There is no suggestion that, apart from the matter involved here, when he was convicted for not leaving his house and reporting to an internment camp. Apart from that, he is a law-abiding and well-disposed citizen. Korematsu, however, has been convicted of an act, not commonly a crime. It consists merely of being present in the state whereof he is a citizen, near the place where he was born, and where all of his life he has lived. Now, if any fundamental assumption, Jackson continues in his dissent, underlies our system, it is that guilt is personal and not inheritable, but here is an attempt to make an otherwise innocent act, staying where you live, making that a crime merely because this prisoner is the son of parents as to whom he had no choice and belongs to a race from which there is no way to resign. And that applies to all of us. We didn't pick our parents. We didn't pick what race they were or what race we are, rather arbitrary. And Korematsu had ne- has never been explicitly overruled But Chief Justice Roberts, just last year in 2018, writing for the majority in Trump versus Hawaii, which dealt with travel bans, Roberts stated that this Korematsu case was wrongly decided, disavowed it, and indicating that a majority of the court no longer finds Korematsu persuasive. He wrote, Korematsu was gravely wrong the day it was decided, has been overruled by the court of history, as opposed to the court itself and to be clear, has no place in law under the Constitution. Roberts also wrote, The forcible relocation of U.S. citizens to concentration camps, solely and explicitly on the basis of race, is objectively unlawful and outside the scope of presidential authority. So there you have it. Now, that's what they call dictum. It wasn't necessary for him to say those things to make the ruling. That was before the court in that case. But he went on and said it anyway. So he's making a statement that's not controlling but in essence, says the court has rejected Korematsu even though we're not officially rejecting it now because it's not before us. And there you have it. Korematsu is a dark stain on our country's history and it cannot be ignored or forgotten. And this was done pursuant to the policy of a great American progressive hero, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I'm DK Williams and this has been The Law, episode 51, Korematsu versus the United States. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Go to Twitter. Follow me there at TheLaw, DKW, and Facebook.com slash Williams, which is the Facebook page for this podcast. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, and teaching. Contact Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for details on that. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next week, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerous. Sleep.